Hi, I'm Cam Gott, an ADHD coach. This is Translating ADHD. And this week, we're delighted to present another special episode dedicated to exploring the lived experiences of people of color with ADHD. This week, I'll be speaking with Kofi Obank. Kofi is a mechanical engineer who lives in South Carolina. He was diagnosed with ADHD in the early 2000s. He's the father of sons with ADHD and has become very involved with the ADHD community. He is a co-facilitator of the African-American Black Diaspora ADHD group at ADA. ADA supports adults with ADHD, and you can find more information about ADA at add.org. So, Kofi, welcome. Thank you, Kim. Great to be here. Yeah. So, thank you. Thank you very much. So, we're going to jump right in. You are a Black man with ADHD. Mm -hmm. So, Kofi, let's just jump right in. Okay. And we're going to start with talking about your ADHD experience. Okay. Yeah. So I'm curious about, was there a moment when it kind of hit you between the eyes or had this sort of seminal moment of like, oh, I process differently. There's something going on. Yeah. So throughout my life, there was always that undercurrent that I was a little different, but I just attributed it to maybe just sort of discipline or whatever, just getting focused, whatever. Okay. But I would say in my younger years, so let's just say before college, from an ADHD standpoint, one thing that I sort of always struggled with was short-term memory and sequencing. But again, I just attributed that to, okay, try harder, right? So I'd say two very seminal moments for me when it came to my ADHD was my sophomore year in college. And then later on, a period of time shortly after I graduated. So my first two years in college were relatively easy. And what happened was that in high school, I ended up going to a school overseas in Ghana, West Africa. That's where my family's from. And the curriculum there was so difficult that when I got back here, it was like, oh, the last two years in high school were pretty easy. And it'll take a lot of AP courses. And that helped prepare me for those first couple of years in college. And in fact, I was able to test out of some classes. So the first year, the executive management skills that I had, the organization skills, they worked. They were fine. And the GPA was good. It reflected that. It, things were wonderful. But when I got deeper into my engineering curriculum, where I actually had to learn stuff from scratch, that's when I realized that, hmm, there's something going on here. So what would happen is that in class, I realized that, you know, I just was not absorbing the information. I would truly have to grapple with the subject matter. I would have to take time to expand on whatever notes that I took, do the reading, reread it, put it in different words. It took a lot. And it was something that I had to do on my own, meaning that, you know, it was like, sure, I can study in groups, but if I didn't put enough hours in that individual work, grappling with material, working through it, making it my own, it was a real challenge. And so consequently, what that translates into is things take longer. And if I'm not honest about that time commitment, I'll constantly underestimate what it takes to prepare for assignments tests and, you know, on and on, right? So it got to the point where I struggled quite a bit and it took me about a year or so to kind of figure out, okay, the game has changed and I had to change with it. And I realized that it took a lot of effort to get there and it burned up a lot of bandwidth for me. And so spending time with family, 
hobbies, you know, all those things that wrapped around self-care became more of a challenge because of, you know, I didn't quite know why I had to work the way that I did. I just knew that I had to do it. And just the way I was raised, the work ethic was like, look, you just put your head down and grind. So engineering, was it mechanical engineering? Yeah, yeah. So my undergrad is in mechanical engineering. The first half of my career, so roughly about seven, 10 years of my career out of school was in the engineering space. But however, in terms of what I do right now, it's more of essentially product management. So if you use a construction analogy, a product manager is like a general contractor who has to build a house. You got the plans and all that good stuff, but you hire trades to do specific work for you, but it's according to the plan. So I have to hire an electrician. I have to hire a plumber. I have to hire a carpenter all to work on this plan. Now, the plan is whatever the strategy is for my particular portfolio products. Now, these trades, so to speak, these are other functions within the business, whether it be sales, engineering, customer service, so on and so forth. None of them work for me, but I have to sell my plan to the organization and engage these other functional areas in support of the plan. So that's been the second half of my career. But the engineering core helps because the products that I manage are industrial products used in you know process industries and things of that nature. So having that strong technical background is very helpful. So going back to your school experience was this realization that you really had to chop off other things and keep the focus on the studies in order to get through and get out with a degree. Mm-hmm. So self-care and time outside of school suffered. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it was a challenge. It definitely was a challenge. So through most of college, I was I got better at a very young age. So that put a lot of pressure from a family standpoint. My wife at the time and I had struggles there around the work-life balance or school-life balance, making sure that we had the right amount of time for our relationship and our family commitments. But we figured a way through it. You know, she adapted and she was real helpful too, as far as helping me out when I had big projects, right? Those things that, you know, you got big projects, you got to break down. And in different phases and where I was weak, she was strong and she was able to help me with that. She was very, very supportive during that period of time. I couldn't have gotten through without her. Yeah. So I've worked with folks who are in project management and I'm thinking Gantt charts. Yeah, that's right. right? So Gantt chart is, uh, just for listeners, a Gantt chart is this kind of a breakdown. It's like a spreadsheet with time going across the top on the x-axis. And then you're kind of uh, different roles and jobs going down the column. And it's really this sort of timeline. It almost looks like the sort of train yard from above, kind of like- That's right. Yeah, that's right. It's a good way of saying it. Yep. Yeah. And so it's a lot of tracking. It's a lot of managing. Here you are with ADHD. So what are the strengths you bring to be a successful project manager, to overcome the challenges and the executive function challenges around, say, tracking and delegating and you're coordinating, right? (laughs) Yeah. So for me, it's two things. With my ADHD, I found that it's never an issue of knowing what to do. I typically always know what to do, but it's the execution piece that I struggle with. And a lot of times the challenge for me is pushing myself to say, you know what? All right, I can do this because the level of activation that I have to get to, to do those types of tasks can be challenging. So in in other words, I got to psych myself up. I got to create some sort of urgency in order to get the momentum to do those things. In terms of what I do that's useful for me, I have a few things that I try to do. So number one, I always try to be aware of my time. One thing that I always can get better at is time blindness. So being aware of just the flow of time. So using 
timers, having a calendar where it's like, you know, and sometimes it can get a little bit over-attentive, but, you know, breaking down each hour in terms of the plan and knowing that I'm going to miss it, but just writing it down and then having the plan versus actual. And then every hour, okay, how am I tracking against the plan? How am I tracking against the plan? Okay. And then being able to manage distractibility when the tasks are not that interesting or the anxiety when the <laughs> the deadline is approaching and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to scramble, get all this stuff done and maintaining that sense of calm and saying, okay, I've got a plan, maybe a bad plan, but that's okay. At least I got something that I can iteratively improve, but no plan is the worst scenario. So it's okay if I've got a plan and I realize that it's, it might be a crappy plan, but at least if I approach it with a spirit of I can make this better, then I'm able to move forward. So that's some of the tips and tricks. And then obviously the classics where you try to organize your tasks into important and urgent, you know, important, but not urgent, you know, the classic Covey stuff and just having a framework. I found that the framework doesn't have to be perfect, but the discipline around adhering to the framework is what allows the magic to happen because it keeps the visibility with yourself. And I always try to deliver for myself. Now, the degree of success varies, (laughs) I'll be frank, but just having that spirit of how can I deliver for myself so that I can deliver for others? Because to the extent that I can hold to my commitments to myself, I think then I become stronger in being able to deliver on commitments to others. It becomes a virtuous cycle. So I don't have the magic formula. To me, it's something that I'm always iterating. One thing that I have been trying to do more of with all my different projects, having the plan, using, it's funny you mentioned, those stinking Gantt charts, right? Using those Gantt charts and laying it all out and then realizing that, you know, incrementalism is my friend. So now that I've got an overall plan, figuring out, okay, so for this week, how much of these tasks can I pull out from each one of these plans and plug into my day? as opposed to trying to do everything at once and realizing that it really is a game of inches around your schedule. And the schedule can be a very cruel mistress, right. but the work has to be done. A ways back, we were doing a series on seeing yourself in the picture because we can sort of lose ourselves. And I just was, as you were talking about that, it's sort of around that discipline and really being true to yourself, really getting a sense of what am I committing to here? Right. What is it to be a man of my word. And so the two things there is that distinguishing, doing some really significant distinguishing there, and then that iterative process, which I think that many folks with ADHD can struggle with. It's sort of often this sort of all or nothing. So that kind of like put something into play and just keep working the problem. Mm-hmm. It's not perfect, but you know, standing still is not an option. Yeah. And I would say as for me as an ADHD or sometimes it can be frustrating that a lot of times I always feel like I'm starting from zero, even though you, you have a body of knowledge and experience. At least for me, a lot of times it feels like you're always starting from zero. It's the plan. It's the structure. It's the framework. It's the accountability with, to yourself. And hopefully if you're fortunate enough, you have an accountability community, whether it be formal or informal, right? Whether it be, you know, your friends, family, coworkers, whatever. You know, that community is absolutely critical to helping you to maintain your resilience and your faithfulness to whatever framework you've committed to. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. I think it's helpful for listeners to hear about how you see your work and how you approach it. I can hear the engineer in there too. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I know that the engineers that I've worked with, it's like, keep working the problem, keep working the problem. Right. Yeah. I like to say I'm a recovering engineer. (laughs) 
So is it okay if we shift over to the work you're doing with Ada? Because sure. it's, it's one thing to like learn about your own ADHD and learn to manage it. And it's another to go into the community and really give time, attention, and energy to support others. Can you say more about the work you're doing with Ada? Sure, I, I can. But before I do, Cam, if I could just throw one more thing as far as those seminal moments. Yeah, around. sure. So I did mention the college thing. The thing that really hit me between the eyes and it's like, okay, this is what put me on a path to actually start taking medication and seeking treatment was just the struggles in, in my relationship. My wife and I, long story short, we ended up in counseling. And as we sat there with the counselor and we talked about the struggles within the relationship, for whatever reason, the counselor said, you know what, what you guys are describing, a lot of that sounds like things that can be attributed to ADHD. So, you know, you figure with us ADHDers, sometimes we can come across as careless, not thoughtful, you know what I'm saying? Unreliable, right? And obviously those things can impact, the, you know, our relationship negatively. So anyway, long story short, that counseling experience uh, led me to look deeper into what could be causing certain types of behaviors. So then, you know, I worked with the individual counselor, which led to working with my primary care physician, getting on medication, doing some behavioral changes, things of that nature. But early on, I'd say shortly after I was diagnosed, I mostly relied on pills. And you know what I'm saying? And, you know, that whole the whole saying is pills don't give you skills. But I was so grateful to have the pills to help quiet the noise. But again, I just wanted to highlight those two experiences. Number one, the college experience, and then number two, the counseling experience. So. Right. I do a little bit of work with Melissa Orloff. And so she's the ADHD marriage expert that's out there. Right? She wrote a book on it, several books, actually. And it's a lot of folks who are coming to her for help or doing her couple seminar. And the individuals that I see in my group coaching with her graduates is this, you can focus on the job, but you know anything really beyond that is really tough, right? And so meeting needs of a loved one, paying attention to the family. It's sort of like, oh, I'll get to that. I'll get to that. You know, well, I'll, let me first take care of work. And it's like, I'm going to take care of work and I'll get to that over there. And then it doesn't happen. That's and, right. Yeah. And, then you, and then you bump into, you know, some challenges there. That's right. So, yeah. And thanks for sharing that. So, but how do we, how do we go from there and just, again, managing your own ADD to being someone in the community helping out and especially the work you're doing with Adam? Sure. Yeah. No, you know, just in my ADHD journey, a lot of it was done alone. So as I got more involved in sort of recovery communities, 12-step communities, it spurred me to say, well, you know what? All right. I should probably be doing this. I need a community around my, you know, to help me with my ADHD, right? So I started to seek out, you know, there's Chad, there's all, you know, all these different organizations, right? So eventually, you know, I settled upon Ada. The membership fees are, are not that high. You know, you can do a family membership. I'm like, oh, this is great. You got all this material. So I joined Adam and you sort of just was consuming the different products. But then they started a virtual support group for, uh, for black folks. And I'm like, okay, I'm signing up for that. Because within the black community, I know we're going to talk about more about this later, but there's just, there's not a lot of support. I think especially amongst people in my generation around ADHD. So the thought of, you know, engaging in the community with other black ADHDers, I'm like, man, <laughs> I'm all for it. So I signed up for it and I'll be frank. The people who part of the initial group, it wasn't the greatest. 
just the way it was set up. Unfortunately, the spirit in which it was done was good, but the execution was a bit, it was a bit ham-fisted in that the primary person that led it was not really an ADHD -er. So it became more, the initial experience was one of like, okay, this, I can get this out in the regular world. Someone who was neurotypical telling me how I need to do better. And they're really, it almost became more of a classroom setting. I think consequently attendance sort of suffered. And then thankfully the right people got involved at ADA and realized, okay, particularly Romanza McAllister, you know, who's my sister, I love her to death. She's done amazing work with ADA. But anyway, so it was Romanza who the group was her brainchild, but she was instrumental in retooling it and making it so much more better. And then once after that retooling, I engaged in the community and it was just great. And so I went from being a member to wanting to do more. And so becoming an ad ambassador and a co-facilitator. And then that co-facilitating work led to being on some committees, particularly around at the time they were calling the diversity and inclusion committee, but it's, it's gone through some different iterations. Anyway, long story short, that work on that committee led me to get involved with the board. And then eventually led me to joining the board at ADA. In terms of my responsibilities on the board at ADA, I'm in charge of the project management team for ADA. So this is a new thing for ADA. And these ADA has been growing exponentially. And consequently, you know, with growth comes challenges and making sure that you have the right level of projects that sustain the growth, but also take care of your core responsibilities, right? So Ada realized that, okay, we're on a different journey here and we want to do more, but unless we have, we're very focused and very intentional about getting certain things done within the organization, we're not going to be able to be successful. We're not going to be able to continue to serve our communities. So we're going to go ahead and create this department of project management. And so that is my group. And essentially we're there to make sure that Ada is working on, and I'm borrowing this phrase, this is some of the business speak, sorry, I can't help myself. That's all right. <laughs> Some of the, uh, what they call the wildly important goals. So the things that absolutely are critical, right? To add a growing to maintaining its core mission. We've got to make sure that those projects are, you know, they're identified. They're well resourced. They're moving along. They have the right level of oversight. And that is one of the primary functions of the project management group. And then also there are a lot of things like little projects that are ongoing that, you know, someone needs to help the organization hurt. And that's another function of the group. And then the third function is actually managing certain projects. Yeah. So I wonder if we can go back to the work that you're doing with Diaspora. Sure. And, yeah. And just the, I guess I'm curious about the challenges that you see and you've experienced there. And, mm -hmm. and really, again, as a person of color with ADHD, what are the challenges that you're seeing and that you're addressing and getting to address at ADA with Romanza. Okay. So with the uh, African-American support group, really a lot of what we focus on is creating a community that allows Black folks with ADHD thrive. So what, what do I mean by that? So community is the focus because we believe that it's with the right supportive environment of the community that we can flourish. None of us gets anywhere by ourselves. So it's absolutely critical that we create a sense of community, a protected space where we can allow our ADHD, our blackness, however is unique to each one of us, just be present and sit with it and center it in all of its glory and messiness. Yeah, That's the baseline. Once that community is established, there's trust, 
Well, it's the beginnings of trust, right? People can open up, they can bring their burdens, and they're more open to solutions or sharing what bedevils them or where they've been successful or whatever the topic of the day is. But you got to create that community first. And so Romance has done an amazing job setting up the group. And you know, she ended up putting a few co-facilitators in place so that she could pass the baton along to us. And, you know, she's moved on and she's continued to do great work out in the world. And so as far as like, what are some of the challenges that we face? I'd say as being Black ADHDers, there's multiple things at play. Black folks, there's sort of an ambient level of a white sort of culture and expectation mixed with neurotypicalness that we have to deal with. So for instance, on one hand, as Black folks, you know, there's always this constant pressure, you know, to come across as respectable so that in doing that, it you get along to go along. There's that. You layer on top of that, basically having to navigate as a neurotypical and not being neurotypical. And so you've got all the challenges that go along with being ADHD. And those challenges can be misinterpreted. And let's be honest, a lot of times with Black folks, certain things will be overly misinterpreted. So issues around timeliness, competency, being able to communicate effectively, emotional outbursts. I mean, the list goes on and on, you know, but that's the hill you have to climb. That's a lot of effort. Yeah. And then also, too, what does it mean to be black? Everyone's black. This is different. So you got that, too, where some black folks, some of us are nerdy. Some of us enjoy sports. Some, I mean, some of us are amalgamation of all these things. You know what I'm saying? So you've also got that expectation as well. It's like, what does it mean to be black? And just how do you maintain that? And just realizing, OK, listen, that's a lot of work. Let's <laughs> let's just first we're human beings. Let's accept our humanity. Let's go ahead and center our humanity and realize that, you know, yeah, the black experience in the world, in, in America in particular, there is definitely unique challenges that are on a interpersonal level, on a systemic level, and on an institutional level. But you know what? The story thus far has been one of resilience. It's been one of challenging the system and one of progress. So the fight's not over. So we can work through those things, but let's first be here for ourselves as Black folks, as ADHDers, and minister and help one another. Beautifully articulated. And so thank you for sharing that. As you said, it makes the hill so much higher to climb. All of that efforting of you know passing as neurotypical, masking, and also in a society where there's you know, whiteness, the prevalent thing out right. there that you've got to navigate. As you said, it's about soldiering on. It's about not stopping. About right. progress. The last interview I did was with Rashida Perry Jones, who is a facilitator with Philadelphia Chad. And she was speaking of similar challenges and yet also this optimism of right. we're not going to stop. We can't stop. Can you say more about that? Again, what we were talking about before we started was you have a desire to overcome. It's strong within you. And I just, I'm just like digging down into that. What is that, Kofi, that you draw upon to address the challenges that you see every day? Yeah. So there's a few things. One quote that I really love that spurs me on, and I can never remember who said it, but it was a tribute to one of the leaders of the civil rights movement back in the 60s. He said, we'll fight until hell freezes over and then we'll fight on the ice. And so it's like, wow. All right. <laughs> 
That's somebody who's not going to give up. That's someone who's relentless. And I think that spirit, that sort of ethos is, you know, it's absolutely critical, you know, in order to move forward. Another thing that I would attribute it to is just my upbringing. Like there's one saying that my mom always says is that no condition is permanent, meaning that, you know, everything has its season for change. And so the question is, what type of change are you going to commit to? Just fighting because you're fighting from a place of hope and figuring out a way to push back against despair. So as far as where I find my encouragement, I would say there's an element of faith, there's an upbringing, there's the recovery work. There's just also community as well. I know I'm grateful. I have a great family. You know what I'm saying? I have a mom. I have my boys. I've got my brother. I have my other loved ones who they put up with a lot for me. <laughs> they, do. they put up with a lot from me. But, you know, just having their support, it reminds me of the good things that I've done, right? It helps me get out of my head, knowing that I've got that connection with them and wanting to serve, you know what I'm saying, to connect and just be connected with them and enjoy life together. That helps quite a bit. I'd say the work that I do with Ada is a big thing too. Just knowing that you can serve a cause. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have all your stuff together, but there's a space in your life where you know what? You can do good. You can serve and you can see how that work has a ripple effect. It can be very rewarding and you can develop friendships and you never know where those things can go. So that helps, you know, and then also it's just like, look, you know, you just have to keep moving forward. So, you know, I think as ADHDers, we end up developing just a resiliency about us. Maybe it's just we just don't know when to quit. Don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean that we don't struggle. I know I've got my own unique struggles, but, you know, that desire, okay, let's do this one more time. You know what I mean? The ingenuity, the creativity, the gifts that go along with ADHD, they spur me along knowing that, okay, it comes with its challenges, but man, when things are good, they can be really good. It's being able to be different and not being so stuck in a neurotypical linear way of thinking. Because, you know, a lot of times that linearity is just all it is, is that neurotypicals enforce that into the world. But we know that life is random and chaotic. It is <laughs> it's up to each one of us to find the meaning in life. Right. So what I'm appreciating as I'm listening to you and as you're sharing these stories, going back to that seminal moment, well, both of them in the sense of you had to really jettison everything and focus on just your schoolwork to the detriment of self-care, to the detriment of anything outside of your studies. Mm -hmm. And also then in the second seminal moment of the therapeutic moment there of like not giving enough or attending to your spouse and community, just how community has become so important to you. Am I getting that right? That it's sort of like community before was sort of like you, you were focused on grades and the community outside was, you didn't have time and attention for it, but now it's almost like you can't go forward without it. Right. Yeah. And that's the lesson for me. I always come back to is that the danger that I always have to deal with is the hyper-focus, hyper-focusing on a certain aspect to the detriment of other things and being able to zoom out and have that sort of meta perspective and you know, looking out and seeing how I'm connected, right? There's so many other people that I'm connected to that their well-being is tied to mine as mine is to theirs. And just on a fundamental level, I mean, that's part of what it means to be a human being, right? Right. Yeah. (laughs) So, but yeah, that's something that I always seek to work on, to stay connected to a community, 
not getting into a place where you're alone, not being inside your head and realizing that, you know, no matter what the challenges are, you can recover. It takes time. It's painful. It's not linear. Okay. But keeping that commitment and having enough of a community around you, right? So that they can help pull you out. Yeah. So as we finish up, you did speak about having two sons with Mm -hmm. ADHD. And Mm -hmm. what are the lessons that you try to convey to them? As you pass on your learning to your sons, what are the messages that you pass on to them about living with ADHD? As a first thing is they teach me more than I teach them. Number oh, one. Yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah, that's my kids too. Yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 that's number one. Both of them are very different from one another and they're both very unique. What I try to encourage in them is always have just a strong sense of self. You know what I'm saying? To realize it's okay. You're different. You are just different and it's okay. Just given their family background and then you layer ADHD on top of it and just creating a space that, you know what, when we're dealing with one another, it's okay to be who you are. Okay. However you communicate, however you communicate, you know, however you're feeling is how you're feeling. But you know what? At the core, let's maintain a connection that's real, that's authentic. It means that we're going to rub up against each other the wrong way. A lot of times, a lot of times you don't even want to talk to me and that's fine. <laughs> but you know, let's, let's keep that core connection strong. And in terms of ADHD, with ADHD, there's just a lot of stress that goes along with it, right? Especially when you're a young person and you're dealing with school and relationships, and especially, you know, when you're going through your adolescent years, it's just, it can be a very overwhelming time, very isolating. And so letting them know that, look, you know what? A lot of times just letting them know that, okay, I know what that feels like, where it's like, you feel like you did everything right, but you still forgot your wallet or you lost something, or you forgot a critical step, or you froze just because you were overwhelmed. One of the struggles with ADHD is just that it's very inconsistent. It causes a lot of inconsistency in your life because when you're on, you're on and it works great, but you never quite know when, you know, the system's going to sort of fizzle, right? And it fizzles. It's like, oh man, what do I do now? Yeah. And you know, and there's no, we've lost the directions for the backup emergency reboot. Exactly. Exactly. So in terms of how I try to be helpful, again, it's just the maintain the connection. Let them know that, okay, this is, it's a unique struggle and it's our struggle. How do we get through it together? Especially where I try to be helpful is around where they're feeling overwhelmed and saying like, you know what? Listen, there's a line of people who are going to tell you what you're not doing well and tell you how you're missing the mark. You got your own internal voice, your own internal critic. Well, you know what? Let's forget about that. That's noise. Don't let your confidence crack. We can get through this. There's a way forward. Let's figure it out. It's going to be messy, but we can figure it out and you'll survive. Whatever's going on is not going to eat you. It may feel like it, but it's not going to. Yeah. It sounds a little bit like your own inner voice that got you through your college days. Yeah. Pretty pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Rinse and repeat. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Kofi, this has been great. So thank you so much. No problem. Thank you for having me. Hopefully it's been a good experience for the audience as well. Again, thank you, Cam. Anytime you want to chat, I'd be glad to. All right. Great. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye.